The scripture reading for this morning is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, and Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're continuing our Advent series this morning by considering God's first promise of victory, the victory that he would achieve through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. It's important that we reflect on these things. I, I mentioned this last week because we so easily lose perspective. This time in which we live between Christ's first coming and his return, his first advent and his second and final Advent is a time that our Lord said is to be characterized by watchfulness. But as we saw last week in Psalm 98, this watchfulness can itself be characterized by joy. Joy even now as we anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. Joy knowing that one day even the creation itself will rejoice at the return of our King, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what's true right now. If this is true, if God's word is true, if Jesus in fact came, which we believe he did, if he, if he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, if he suffered under Pontius Pilate, if he was crucified, died, and was buried, if all these things are true that we hold on to, then that means that this life, this 
brief life that we live on this earth exists between these two majestic bookends in which everything was changed. The birth, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and then one day, in a moment that only God knows, the return of Jesus Christ. That's the age in which we live. That's the only thing that's yet to take place. We live, don't we? As if these things don't exist. If all that hasn't yet taken place, if the ramifications of the victory that Jesus achieved on the cross that will one day be fully manifest to all creation hasn't in fact happened and we're just kind of here. We're just struggling to get by. We do battle against temptation and we fail. We, we sin. We're filled with sorrow. And in our sorrow, because the world is broken, there's no hint of rejoicing, of hope, of anticipation. And as I said last week, I'll, I'll say again now, in no small measure, because we've lost perspective of what's real of what's true, of what Jesus Christ has accomplished in his first coming to die on that cross. And so Christmas, even as we think about baby Jesus in the manger, is no less a time than Easter or any other Sunday or any other day of the week for that matter. Any day that ends in Y is a good day to meditate on the victory that Jesus achieved for us on the cross. Because make no mistake, the baby in the manger, he came to win. He came to crush the head of the serpent. So let's spend a little time this morning reflecting on these two passages. The, the passages that, on the one hand in Genesis 3, give us a, 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 a reminder of why everything is the way it is. And of the promise of the, of the Savior who would come to crush the head of the serpent. And then the passage in Hebrews that's just one of many that points to the fulfillment of that truth, of that promise in Genesis. That first announcement of the gospel. But before we go there, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this portion of your word. We pray, O oh God, that you would teach us from it by your spirit. Would you change us? Would you help us to grow, O oh God? Would you help us to live as people who are, who are, are not only uh, watchful, but joyful in anticipation of your return? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at three things. And before I get into the points, Eric had asked me to make sure the kids got dismissed to children's worship because he forgot. And then I promptly got up here and forgot. So we make a great team. And uh, if your kids ages four to seven have not headed off to children's worship and you want that to be the case, then they can go now. If not, they're always welcome here with us. All right. Three things we're going to look at this morning. The nature of temptation, the devastation of sin, and the promised deliverer. The nature of temptation, the devastation of sin, and the promised deliverer. So first, the nature of temptation. This is verses three, um, verses 1 through 7 of Genesis chapter 3. Let's go back and take another look at it. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That word crafty is actually a word that's it's morally neutral. I mean, there's a, it's the idea of being shrewd. It's, in and of itself, it, it can be a good thing, but it also can be applied in a, in a way that is, that is evil. And that's certainly what's happening here. 
The serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, we can, we'll go on and read more in a minute here, but it's clear, isn't it, that this snake is no mere snake. This this is evil personified. In fact, Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 20, the Apostle John makes it clear that this is Satan. This is the deceiver. And so what we have here is no mere snake. We have here that which is opposed to God and would lead God's people astray. What did he do? He, there's two ways in which we can look at this, two things that are going on that, that kind of captures or crystallizes what Satan did here. He tempted Eve to doubt God's goodness, and he declared to Eve that God's word is a deception. He tempted Eve to doubt God's goodness, and he declared to Eve that God's word is a deception. Doubting his goodness. Look at verse 1. The serpent was more crafty. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, there's just the one tree. The, the whole garden was available to Adam and Eve. And so there, even there, beginning to insinuate that this God isn't good. He doesn't really want good things for you. And then jump down to verse 4. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that was a delight to the eyes, and the trees to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. I'm sorry, that's not verse 4. That's verse 6. Let's go back to verse 4. Every, every week, it feels like these little numbers get smaller and smaller. I'm not sure what it is. It must be this Bible. I need to find a different one where nothing changes. Oh, wait, that's my eyes. Okay, yeah. Uh, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. There, there, God had said you will die if you eat of the fruit. Don't touch it. And, and here's Satan saying... He's lying. His word is a deception. It's the same thing that, G, that, that, that Satan did with Jesus in the wilderness. When he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, in Mark chapter 1, in Luke chapter 4, in Matthew chapter 4, um, ever so briefly in Mark, as with everything, but more unpacked in Matthew 4, in Luke 4, Satan there with Jesus in the wilderness was essentially saying, what I offer you is something greater than what God can give you. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Can you really trust your heavenly Father to give you more than I could give you? And Jesus, you have the power to turn these stones into bread. You're hungry. You should do that. In every way, even there, Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to doubt God's goodness and not believe God's word to him. Of course, Jesus counteracts everything that Satan says with the word of God, which is an important example for us to follow. This is what Satan always does. Jesus in John 8.44 declares Satan to be the father of lies. This is what Satan does. He seeks to deceive in order to destroy. What did Eve do? Eve 
doubted the goodness of God. Eve didn't rely on the promises of God. She didn't know God's word in the sense that she could trust that it reflected God's very heart. She added to God's word on the one, in the one sense, right? Don't even touch it. But she completely missed that the, the word of God, the promises of God that were given to her concerning the, the great blessing that she and Adam had in the garden, all the trees available to them except that one. And that one, God in his goodness was saying, don't partake of that tree. God's word couldn't be trusted because ultimately his heart must not be good. And it's interesting that in Genesis we read that it's only after she made those determinations that now suddenly the fruit of the tree was appealing. Whenever Hebrew narrative slows down, you've heard me say this plenty of times, and this is verse 6. Whenever it slows down, we're trying to be told something that the author doesn't want us to miss. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So it went from going really slow to boom, 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 boom. That's where we're supposed to really pause ourselves. She took, she saw. It was appealing. It was good. It wasn't good. I mean, it was created by God. In essence, it was good, but because of God's prohibition, it was not good for she and Adam to take and eat it. And yet in her eyes, because she had doubted God's goodness and abandoned his word, now suddenly this thing that if she had trusted God's goodness and relied upon his word could be seen for what it was, instead it became something that she couldn't live without. And of course, Adam. Adam was there with her all along, no less willful in his disobedience. This is the nature of temptation. When we, when we decide in our hearts, at some level, maybe we would never really vocalize it, but in our hearts we decide, you know, God really isn't good. Like, he doesn't really want the kind of things from me that I want from me. And so therefore, because I've elevated myself and my own desires to this place of absolute autonomy, consequently, God must not be good because he doesn't want the same things that I want. And his word can't be trusted. All these promises that he's given me in scripture, I really can't trust those. You make those decisions and then all of a sudden that thing that you see, that, that, that website, that, that woman or that man, that job, that you know, income, whatever it may be, all of a sudden that becomes something that, that you just can't live without. You find yourself fixated on it, uh, longing for it the same way that Eve longed for the fruit of the tree that God said not to take. Where did it lead? Utter devastation. Verses 8 through 13 of Genesis 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of, of which I commanded you not to eat? The, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? 
done. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. There's so much relational wreckage just right there in those verses. If we were to go on and read the rest of chapter 3, we would see even more relational wreckage. God's shalom, his perfect peace, all things being rightly integrated. Man to God, man within himself, man to the created order, creation itself, all things now ripped, that fabric torn, disintegration where there had been perfect integration and harmony. Man's relationship, Adam and Eve, their relationship to God and that of every human person since then, wrecked. They hid from God. This idea of, of walking in the garden, is a, it's a Hebrew idiom. It's, a, it's an idea that speaks to that of, of friendship, of a desire for, for nearness. Here's God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve are hiding from God. We do that. The God who created us who wants fellowship with us, who sent his son in order to rescue us, who now considers his people to be his inheritance. We hide. One of my favorite, you know, memes, you know what a meme is, right? One of my favorite memes is this, it's just just a a whiteboard that has these words written on it. Um, Religion says, I... This is what happens when you just kind of ad lib and go off on things. I know what the gospel one says. The gospel one says, I sinned, I need to call my dad. I remember now. Religion, I sinned, my dad's going to kill me. Gospel, I sinned, I messed up, I need to call my dad. That's, That's the gospel. It's not to run and hide from God. It's actually to run to God. That's right where God wants us, near to him. But we hide. We run. Our relationship with God is fractured. Our relationship within ourselves, David in Psalm 86 prays, Unite my heart, O God, that I might fear your name. There's, there's part of David that wants to worship God, that, that wants to acknowledge you are the creator, I am the creature, you are holy, I am sinful. I want to have this relationship with you that is properly marked by awe and reverence, and yet I have to ask that you would unite my heart because there's so much of me that wants to go my own way. To worship at the throne of self, we would say, and not at the throne of God. Our relationship within our very selves is fractured. Our relationships with one another. We, we read of the blame shifting that takes place right here in, in verses 8 and following. Again, if we were to go on and read the rest of the passage, we'd see the conflict that exists between Adam and Eve that would later exist between Cain and Abel and that continues to exist throughout all of biblical history, recorded history, your personal history, and mine. And then, of course, fracture, division, destruction in our relationship to the created order. And specifically, what we see here is our, our relationship to work. Work, which is good, now becomes toil. And so it will be until our Lord and Savior Jesus returns. And, and that, that idea of, the, I come back to the fruit being so appealing. Whatever that fruit is for you, that you think that you just can't live without. It may be something good. It may be something evil. But you've made it a God thing. 
And there's this sense in which you have to have it, and it looks so appealing. It seems so good for eating, for enjoying, for consuming. And then you take that first bite, and it is rotten to the core and filled with mealworms. Because it wasn't given to be God to us. If it is a good thing, it was given by God to be received with thanksgiving. If it is an evil thing, it was meant to be abhorred and rejected. But in the end, when we elevate even good things to a place where only God should be, well, it's like when, it's like when God says, you've, you've committed two sins. You've turned from me the source of living water to broken cisterns that hold no water. They just won't satisfy not like God satisfied. And so then we, we, we come back to this curse that's pronounced on the serpent. Look at verse 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's interesting that it says between your offspring and her offspring. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Genesis, says this, Why is he called the seed of the woman? Genealogies in the ancient world always pass through the man, but in the entire history of mankind has there been only one person who has been only the offspring of a woman. And now we're at Christmas, aren't we? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew one twenty three and Isaiah seven fourteen. Jesus is the seed of the woman. This is the link between Christmas and Easter, is it not? Why did he share in our flesh and blood? Now we're at Hebrews chapter two, verses fourteen and fifteen. Let me read that again for us real quick. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I think of that last phrase, who through all their lives were subject to lifelong slavery through fear of death. I think of an article I just read in the New York Times this week uh, about a woman who, um, her desire was, and this was, she was an advocate for this throughout her entire life. Uh, she saw death as something that was meant to be enjoyed. She said she couldn't wait to die to experience the, what she anticipated to be a transcendent experience of bliss in dying. She was excited about what she thought would be you know, on the other side. Just the fact that it was unknown. And so she, in 2018, she had a, um, a, a party in which people came and, and decorated her casket. She wasn't even sick at the time. And then she got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer about five weeks ago. She only lived another three weeks. Her death was horrible. She thought she would die without painkillers, and she very quickly realized that the pain was unimaginable. And she cried out for help. Interviews that she had planned to give with the New York Times, with Vogue magazine, so they could witness her blissfully dying were canceled. And in the end, of course, she died. 
Now, of course, we don't know what, what happened in the end. I, I, I hope that she cried out to a Jesus that she had not at that point evidently professed and found forgiveness of sin and is now truly enjoying something that she could never imagine. But every indication would be that she died deceived, trying to run from a fear of death that exists because death is not the way it's supposed to be. God did not create humanity to experience death, spiritual or physical. Because of the sin in the garden, that is precisely what we experience unless God breaks in. And he did in Jesus. He came to defeat the one who, by God's permission, held the power of death. To crush the head of the serpent at the cross. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians uh, chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 15, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. The decisive victory over sin and evil was accomplished at the cross. We live now in light of that finished work. We rejoice now in the truth of that victory, a victory that was won for us, by which we are freed from slavery to the fear of death. Yes, death is still a scary thing. We do not now try to spiritualize and approach death in a joyful, happy way because death is still not the way it's supposed to be. One day death will be fully destroyed. Until then, we die knowing that we will rest in Jesus. He will carry us safely through because of the cross, because of the grave, because the grave is empty, because Christ is risen, because he is ascended, and he, as he said and promised, will in fact return. I mentioned the uh, Spurgeon devotional Joy to the World that Wendy and I have been doing. It's just excerpts of different sermons that Spurgeon gave over the years. This is an, uh, a quote from a sermon titled, Christ the Conqueror of Satan, delivered on November 26, 1876. Spurgeon said this, There was enmity between Christ and Satan, for he came to destroy the works of the devil and to, to deliver those who were under bondage to him. For that purpose... He was born. For that purpose did he live. For that purpose did he die. For that purpose has he gone into the glory. And for that purpose he will come again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hope is in you. Lord, as we face the, the prospect of death... We do so on the one hand knowing it is because of sin that has entered the world. This is not the way you created things to be. And yet we approach that day, whenever that day may be, mindful that because Christ is risen, death is not the end. For the Christian, it is the end of the beginning. Our confidence is that the best is yet to come. And so help us to live this day and each day that we have in this momentary life because we are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Where would you help us live today as people who are not only watchful between your two advents, but joyful knowing that you will come. We pray all this in Jesus' name.